There are some extraordinary bits in the Bible, aren't there? Let's pray as we think it through with God this morning. Father, we've just sung that you have our hearts and that we will search for yours. And as we come to think about the life of Abram and how you worked in him, we pray that you will uh, work in us so that we search for your heart and encounter you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I tend to throw my hands about. I wonder whether you would recognize that in your life there has been, probably, a pendulum of faith and doubt. And it probably began right at the beginning of your spiritual life. I don't know when you came to Christ, but maybe one could say you came to faith. Wonderful. And then the girl you fancied didn't fancy you back. And so suddenly you were down in the dumps and your faith wasn't so high. And then you decided to read your Bible and you began to discover God's promises and your faith went back up again. And then you didn't consult God before taking a job and you didn't trust him. And then a health problem came along and you felt angry with God, still in doubt and fear. And then it swung back as you remembered to pray about it and you felt God's peace move into your life. And then there was a big anxiety in the family, and you completely surrendered it all to Father. And then, despite that, you get upset at work. In fact, not just upset, seriously miffed. And you stomp around and say stuff and think stuff and react in a way which is very far from what Jesus would do. And then you remember repentance and forgiveness And you discover God's mercy and your faith rises again. Now, the specifics are just me making it up. But do you recognize or identify any of that feeling of how stuff swings to and fro? And it's very easy for us, isn't it? After we so want to love God, and then we have one of those moments where our faith is low, our fear may be high, we fall into disobedience to get despondent and to slap ourselves on the forehead and say, what? How did I just react? What? Where did that come from? Oh, Father, I'm so sorry. This ring any bells at all? I think you're all such a godly lot. You live up here, don't you? You live in pure faith and trust. Well, most of us actually live with a mixture, don't we? I don't know where you're at at the moment, whether you're in a high of lovely faith and trust over maybe a big issue in your life, or whether there is a big temptation for doubt and concern. But most of us live with inconsistency, swinging to and fro. And the wonderful thing about Well, there are lots of wonderful things about this sermon series because it's all coming out of scripture. But we are looking at real people in the Bible who were just as flawed as we are. And as we come to Abram and look today at some of the ways in which he fell into doubt and disobedience, I think there's lots to be encouraged by and lots to identify with. So let's just remind ourselves of a few of those swings of fear and uh, doubt through to faith for Abraham. Now, originally he was Abram, uh, 
Um, and that's where his story begins. It, quite abruptly, in fact, in Genesis 12, suddenly he is called by God from his very comfortable, successful-sounding existence, and God says, go to a place I'll tell you about. Doesn't even give him a you know, good little sat-nav reference there. It's going to take you this long to get there. He just says, up, my man, up, take everything you've got and change your entire life and move down many miles away and live a life wholly dependent on me. It's a huge and risky calling. But God does give with with that a wonderful series of promises that we just saw in the reading. He promises to bless him and make him into a great nation. He promises to bless those descendants and bless other people through Abram and his descendants as well. But, little glitch, at the moment, not even one descendant. But nevertheless, God promises And the first response we see from Abraham is fantastic faith. He does exactly what he's told. And he doesn't just do an experimental, try it out slightly to see if it works out. He moves the whole caboose. It says he, his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all his family, and all his possessions, flocks, herds, the lot. And he takes them where God shows him. So that is fantastic. He's Started really well. Then there's a famine in the land and he decides wisely to move to Egypt and he goes down there and things begin to unravel fast. Because motivated by fear, you heard the story just now, just as they're about to arrive in Egypt, he says to Sarai, look, you're stunning. This is a real problem. When we arrive, they're going to say, oh, his wife, they'll bump me off so that they can get at you. So could you please say that you're my sister? Not his finest moment. But not an entire lie, in as much as actually they are half-brother and half-sister. So he just focuses on that side of things and pretends they're not together. Well, sure enough, word does get to Pharaoh that a stunning stranger has arrived, and he takes her into his harem. Well, the consequences of this could have been appalling on two levels. Firstly, privately, of course, awful that she would be in a position where she would have to be unfaithful to her husband. But more significantly than that, God's promise rests on Abraham and Sarah having a baby. And through them, everything will be blessed. What would have happened if Sarah had become pregnant through Pharaoh, through a foreigner, through somebody who did not trust God. Completely different scenario. Well, of course, God overrules because he's not going to let his plan go wrong. So the whole of Pharaoh's households get awful diseases. And he works out that it's because of Sarai. And he is extremely indignant with Abram. And he says to him, what have you done to me? Why did you tell me such a lie? Take the woman and take her and go. Understandably. Well, I guess we may feel a mix of response to Abram through this. In a way, we're really shocked because what he did to Sarai made her really vulnerable. And of course it did. Awful thing to do to save his skin. Of course he should have trusted God that if God was with him, God would take him and keep him safe in the place he showed him. But in panic, he made a really bad decision. And which of us has sometimes not been overwhelmed by fear and snatched at a bad decision which was not God's best? 
So I think we can identify with him. Well, the pendulum swings back again, having been in that really bad moment. He moves back uh, from Egypt, and we see him then trying to live a godly and upright life again. And wonderfully, God reaffirms his promise. He takes him out into the landscape, and he says, look north, look south, look east, look west. All of this is for you and for these countless millions of descendants of yours. I'm going to bless you here. And Abram continues to do well and makes a lot of good choices at this point. When he and Lot had got too many flocks and herds between them, he generously gave the junior man, his nephew, the choice as to where he would like to farm, naturally enough. Not Lot took the fertile valley, which looked great, and Abram generously took the drier hill country. Then when Lot down in the valley, uh, got overtaken by enemies and uh, captured. It was great because Abram went down and rescued him. And what's more, he could then have taken plunder, and he didn't. So he's making a series of good, godly choices. But the one huge ongoing issue is childlessness. And for Abram, this is the point of faith, because God keeps on harping on about his inheritance. He says to him in, um, Abram says to God in chapter 15 too, you haven't given me any children. He sounds quite upset and quite petulant and I don't think we can really blame him. He goes on and he says, at this rate, my servant will inherit all that I've accumulated. Well, God doesn't blame him for this reaction either. First of all, indeed mercifully, he confirms his promise. He says, no, your son will inherit. And then, I love this, sometimes the Bible gives us such detail, which really helps us to identify with a situation. Um, God recognizes that Abram is going through a real crisis of faith, and he needs God's own help to stir his faith back up again. And he says, Abram, come outside with me. And he made Abram do what maybe some of you did last night. I did. Did anybody else go outside late, late, late? Yeah, some people did. Um, and um, I lay on a table outside <laughs> at half past 11 and, um, and uh, looked up at the sky. And once your eyes adjust, it, it's beyond one to express, isn't it? Just how many stars there are and how a bit that at first looks like a dark patch begins to twinkle at you. It's absolutely extraordinary. And God uses that same experience, um, with or without shooting stars as they were last night, to say to Abram, I've given you a promise. Instead of looking down at your fears, and don't we do that? When you've got something that you're worried about, something you're anxious about, something that's complicated or confusing, it's so understandable and natural to look down and to look at all the detail and look at this and what's more that and, and then there's another thing and our head is completely full of those circumstances. God takes him outside and says, look up, be reminded, this is the scale of my power. This is what I've made and you're not seeing a tiny proportion of it either. I'm an extraordinary creator God. Trust me, my boy. Trust me. And the very next verse says, Abraham believed God 
and God credited it to him as righteousness. In, in other words, as a right relationship with God. And that is a real transformation point for Abram. He's been obedient before, but at this point it sounds as if he did a real, okay, I get it. This promise can only be fulfilled through you. And that's a wonderful thing. Abram made a choice at that point. And the choice was to say, if God says it, I believe it. And that is a really good thing for us to choose to say as well. And it's just as relevant in our lives. If God says it, I believe it. Now let's just remember, God has not given Abram any visible proof yet that the actual promise will be fulfilled. Indeed, as the years have gone by, it is, humanly speaking, getting less and less likely. And I think we need to remember that when our trust is getting stretched, that equivalent of go outside. In other words, step away from just focusing on the problem and remind ourselves of the scale of our God's faithfulness and what he can do. And I'm needing to remind myself of that at the moment. My mother, to whom I'm very close, had a stroke in uh, May and uh, she is about to move, I hope, from hospital to the nursing home. And in the last couple of weeks, things have been very confusing, and it doesn't look as if it's going all that well, and the admin's certainly chaotic, and it's not clear where she's going to be, or etc., etc. And because I love her, love could take me into anxiety, couldn't it? It'd be very natural to wake every morning, oh gosh, will it get sorted? But I am needing, not just to preach in theory, but to do this on a really regular, minute-by-minute basis. If God says it, I believe it. And he says he loves her. He says he's faithful. I believe it. And that transforms my emotions after that choice to feeling peaceful. And I am so grateful to him. Also, isn't it interesting, and don't we find this too, that the temptations that arise that really unsettle Abram's faith or have that capacity to unsettle Abram's faith arise in the very area that matters most to him and where he most needs to trust God's promise. We saw it with Sarai and Pharaoh. The the temptation was in the area of unfaithfulness. Why? Because it was about how his inheritance would happen. The same happens with us. Now, of course, it's completely um, individual But I think we would all say that the enemy of our souls chooses to tempt us in areas where he may have, if you like, success, where he can truly undermine us. Now, it's different for everyone, but I can pretty confidently say that I don't believe that I will, for instance, ever shoplift. I don't happen to find that a temptation. So the enemy doesn't bother to pressurize me on that. And as it happens... I'm not particularly drawn to gambling either. So that's not a problem that I have to be alert to. But there are plenty of other things that are, where in the past and all too often, if I'm not alert, the enemy has success now. And that is, for me, things like looking for human approval instead of only looking to God to give me affirmation. I can be anxious. I eat chocolate when I'm tired. I fall into self-pity. I can fall into control and start explaining to other people quite nicely, but nevertheless, that it might be a better idea if they did something the other way around. 
Now, your temptations may be very different. Um, it may be passivity. It may be timidity. It might be anger. It might be some of the same as mine, self-pity. It might be violence. We all have those patterns. And we don't have exactly the same promise as Abram. But we do have the most wonderful promise for every one of us who is a child of God. And that is that he says, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And what is so wonderful about that is that we can make that same choice to say, if God says it, thank you, exactly so. If God says it, I believe it. And that tells us that it is not inevitable that this great pendulum has to keep swinging as wildly as it did when we first began in faith. We do not have to fall into huge amounts of fear and doubt or any of those other sin patterns. He is at work in us to make us more like Jesus. And temptations which used to have a real grip have have less of a power over us. I may or may not have mentioned before, but it's, it's an up-to-date um, anecdote in my head, so forgive me if I had. Um, my husband Peter and I had recently been on a holiday, which was, well, lovely. Um, but the beginnings of holidays, this one at any rate, started in an airport, and Peter is in the past, was not at his best in airports. Um, he calls it be- being herded about. And he doesn't like being herded about. And he's slightly claustrophobic. And generally, it used to get to him a lot. And he would be anxious and therefore rather irritable, sometimes sarcastic. Just generally not the best testimony to Jesus being at work in his life. (laughs) And and, um, I would occasionally say little things like, "Uh, darling, you need to get a grip of this. I know, but it is just drive you mad, doesn't it? I know, I know. Anyway, wonderfully... That is not the sort of thing that's beyond God's ability to change. And now, he prays about it before we get to the airport. Uh, it's never too late. It's, it's okay to do it once you get to the airport, but it's even better to take a grip of it beforehand and say to God, Father, this is my temptation, but I do not have to fall into it. And I pray that you will give me the grace to be peaceful. We arrived in Mallorca and we stood for two hours waiting on the ground for... Um, anybody to let one in to do passport control. That is the sort of thing that in the past would have prodded Peter very considerably. But I stood next to a happy, peaceful man. And that is the work of God. Lovelier to live with. Um, And a real testimony to God's work. Now, you may be charming in airports, and I'm I'm sure you all are. But there will probably be something where you have a similar thing where a pattern needs to change. And the encouraging thing is a pattern can change. The Bible talks about these long-term patterns as strongholds. And I'm afraid that Abram's one seems to have been distrust. Because despite the fact that we had a real high point just now with him saying, effectively, if God says it, I believe it, he then falls back into distrust again on the question of his inheritance. And he effectively wonders if God doesn't need a helping hand. 
Sarai comes along, wives can sometimes be a very unhelpful influence, and he suggests to Abram that he sleeps with her maid and that they get a surrogate son that way. Abram doesn't have the sense to resist. He does sleep with Hagar. She does get pregnant. She does have a son. You could call this plan B. It is clearly not God's plan A. But isn't it tempting to come up with plan B? If the answer to our concerns doesn't appear to be coming along quickly, it's somehow comforting to think that you might have another option. It's good to have come up with a fallback plan. Peter sometimes refers to it as second-guessing God. That, you know, if this doesn't happen, I can always do that. Whereas actually the songs we've even been singing this morning, so appropriately chosen, have all been about, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to be dependent on you. My life is in your hands because you are faithful. And that, folks, cuts out plan B. It means that we cannot at one and the same time wholly trust God and have a little option which we think that we might pull out as a solution if God doesn't do his thing. But wonderfully, God does not withdraw from Abraham. He's so merciful as he is to us too. He, the next thing he does is changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many. So he just wants to remind him that the promise will be fulfilled and Sarai's named Sarah. And they, that underlines that even in their names, they need to think in a new way. And we do too, that we need to think of ourselves as new people, changed people. And then God sends angelic visitors to Abraham and Sarah to tell them that by this time next year, they will have a son. Sarah hasn't quite got over the distrust. She was 90. Abraham was 100. It is hard to believe. And what happens when she is listening to the angelic visitors? It says that she laughed in her tent. And the angelic visitors say, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah was afraid, so she lied. And she said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. There's the distrust. Well, we can see the pattern by now. God is God, and God has a plan. And the fulfillment of it in his servant's life depends on that servant, and that applies to us, learning obedience. Learning that we should not be cynical, that we should not fall into plan B, but trust God completely. Because God is at work through Abraham's and our circumstances to change our spiritual characters. And of course, God's own character is wholly faithful. So Sarah does have her miracle baby, and she laughs again, but this time in joy and amazement. Would you believe it? I've had a baby. And that is fantastic. But God is doing something much bigger than just delivering an eight-pound newborn. He is bringing a people to birth. And that is why there is so much spiritual opposition. So be encouraged. Whenever there is a promise to be fulfilled, if it isn't simple in your life, be encouraged. There will be spiritual opposition if it is spiritually significant. 
Now, in Abraham's story, it's all going to happen through one son, Isaac. Not only, of course, must Isaac have been adored by his parents, given how long they waited for him, but also he is so significant spiritually because he must grow to manhood and then have loads of children. So the main test, which is yet to come, and the major breakthrough happen around Isaac. You'll remember the story. Genesis 22 shocks us rigid with this. It reports, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Sacrifice him as a burnt offering on the mountain. Don't you think Abraham must have thought... I cannot have heard God right, but I know I did. How is it possible for him to want me to do that? And this son, the one through whom the promise has got to be fulfilled. But nevertheless, whatever his feelings, his faith was proved by his actions. When it came to it, he was prepared to do as God said. But having seen his obedience and faith, God steps in. Abraham, don't do it. Don't touch the boy. Now that I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Then Abraham saw a ram caught in a bush and sacrificed that instead. And called the place, the Lord will provide. Well, it is a staggering episode it's a rather staggering life really but God has brought him to such a place of givenness to God such a place of wholehearted trust and this is not from a perfect man lest we should be overwhelmed but from a flawed person like us Abraham has swung through doubt and faith through disobedience and extraordinary obedience But in the end, he is commended and remembered even in the New Testament as God's friend. One who trusted God and found God absolutely trustworthy. And that can be our story too. Not of perfection, but of growing faith in our reliable, glorious God. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes we get despondent by our own swings into sin, disobedience, doubt, fear, whatever, when we so want to please you. And sometimes we take or want to take things into our own hands and we want plan B. And we are so grateful for your faithfulness and mercy that in your love you can and you will overrule in our lives as we re-surrender time and again. Lord, just like Abraham, we have reason to know that the Lord will provide. And we decide in our hearts now to say, if you say it, we believe it. In Jesus' name, amen.